listening in to the Chiropractic Research podcast series. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I'll be your host for this interview. Just a brief background about myself. I am a clinical faculty member in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and maintain a private practice of chiropractic in Eaton, Ohio at Essence Wellness Chiropractic Center. My goals for producing these research interviews are First, to get the word out about chiropractic research from the experts publicizing these interviews passes on the benefits of chiropractic research to researchers, chiropractors in practice, as well as practitioners from disciplines and the wider community. Secondly, the goal is to encourage collaboration of researchers to promote future high-quality chiropractic research. And lastly, to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. I'd like to point out that Chiropractic Science has partnered with chirocredit.com to make these podcasts more interactive. You now have the opportunity to hear uh, the podcast live as well as have the opportunity to ask guests any questions you may have. So thank you, Chirocredit, for making this possible. For instructions, to log into chirocredit.com You'll find the instructions there, and you can access the uh, Chiropractic Science podcast section there. Well, let's, uh, with those introductions, let's go ahead and get started with uh, today's call. Dr. Serval began practice in 1992, where he quickly developed a fascination for the clinical enigma of myofascial trigger points and their role in the pathophysiology of chronic myofascial pain as well as the pathophysiology and pathomechanics associated with chronic disease and aging. He pursued graduate studies under the supervision of Dr. Jim Dickey at the University of Guelph, which, by the way, uh, I was born there and I went to Guelph for a little bit, Dr. John. Um, And so... Oh, well, that's interesting. uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. um, uh, He started uh, his career with a BSc in biochemistry from Laurentian, uh, then pursued a Doctor of Chiropractic degree from CMCC in Toronto, and uh, finally uh, got his PhD in biomechanics and neurophysiology from the University of Guelph. Dr. Serbel studies the physiologic mechanisms of myofascial trigger points, their role in the clinical expression and treatment of pain and joint dysfunction, and a core theme to his research, and what I really want to uh, find out more about, because this is fascinating, is the study of central sensitization. And uh, I'll let him tell us about central sensitization uh, on today's call. But he really aims to uh, develop novel treatments and enhance existing treatment approaches in clinical pain management and musculoskeletal biomechanics. So Dr. John Serbel, I'm super excited, as I said, to have you on here. And um, where do we start? How about we start with uh, how did you become interested in being a chiropractor in the first place? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for inviting me to speak with you today. It's indeed my pleasure, and I look forward to a a very uh, interesting interaction here between uh, the participants. So why did I uh, become a chiropractor? Well, uh, I guess chiropractors have always been a part of my life, my family's life. Uh, My parents were patients, um, and, and then I, through sports injuries and whatnot, became a patient myself, a regular patient I would say late teen years, early 20s, Um, and it didn't take me long to see the profound effects of chiropractic, not only on musculoskeletal health, but the health and well-being 
sort of general health and well-being of myself and my family. So the effects I observed very quickly went well beyond the musculoskeletal. And that's what really intrigued me. And I, and I saw this as a really interesting career path. And, and uh, I would say very early on in my life, I decided that this is something that I wanted to pursue. That's great. So were there any particular experiences that you can think of uh, early on that you thought, man, I, I really want to be a chiropractor? Well, I found that the interaction with my chiropractor was far more personal than, than let's say, with my physician or other health professionals that I was seeing, dentists and so on. So I, I, I saw that it was a very sort of personal interaction. I, I, I observed that you could really identify with your patients, connect with them, um, and, uh, and in doing so, I thought, uh, and, I, and I experienced myself, certainly as a patient, that uh, chiropractors had uh, a very profound effect on sort of the general well-being. I, I would not only go leave the office feeling better, but I generally, you know, general sense of well-being was improved with regular chiropractic care. So, so this, was, this was something very, and I didn't know how, um, you know, this was a, a sort of always a question in my mind, and I, I wanted to pursue this uh, as a career path. That's great. That, that, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, it sounds like we've had uh, similar pathways uh, that way as well. I, I've had very, very similar experience to you and uh, noticed the wellness benefits and, and uh, eventually went back to do uh, my PhD as well. And, and uh, it sounds like for similar reasons, but we'll get into that a little bit more here. So <laughs> you went to uh, Laurentian and you got a BSc in biochemistry. And did, did you think that was... Uh, um, going to help you a lot with chiropractic at the time or was that just something else that you were interested in or tell me yeah I've always that. been I've always been intrigued uh, I would say with mechanisms mechanisms of physiology hum, the, 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 the human organism in general and it's always intrigued me certainly as, as someone who played a lot of sports when they were younger you're, you're in tune with your body and and I, I noticed that this uh, this was an area that I was very very keenly interested intrigued simply because there was a lot of unanswered questions in the, in the area of general health and, and well-being. I mean, injuries certainly notwithstanding, uh, the, the, the essence of, of health is really a mystery, a black box, if you will, and it, in a lot of ways it still is. And I think that's really what intrigued me initially to the, the whole field of biochemistry was, was sort of to gain an, a mechanistic understanding of, of human physiology. Well, fantastic, <clears throat> fantastic. And uh, so then you went on to uh, CMCC in Toronto, Mm -hmm. And uh, what was the experience like there? Was it what you were expecting uh, to get out of it? And, and uh, so leave me on your, your trip uh, mm -hmm. to becoming a chiropractor. Certainly, certainly, yeah. Then, then uh, my experiences were, were at CMCC were, were quite amazing, actually. It's quite a, a, a renowned institution, certainly in the chiropractic community and, and outside of the chiropractic community. It's, it's well-respected. And um, my experiences were, were nothing short of outstanding. I mean, the education is top-notch. <laughs> the um, clinical uh, training was top-notch. And I really felt leaving CMCC that I was well-prepared to enter the clinical world, essentially, in, in terms of being able to diagnose patients as well as manage them on, on multiple levels. Okay, great. And then... So after chiropractic college, did you start a practice right away? 
Yeah, so immediately I went out and practiced uh, on my own, solo practice for probably about a year. And then um, I met a physician, a young physician, and we, uh, we, we got along quite well and we opened a practice together <clears throat> and started uh, practicing uh, what we called integrative medicine. So he was very open to what I did and, and um, we, we practiced sort of uh, what, we, what we termed integrative medicine. Now it's a common term, but this is back in the uh, mid-90s. And uh, we would share patients and, and we would uh, sort of treat patients um, from both aspects. And certainly a lot of this was musculoskeletal, of course. Uh, so in doing so, I was exposed to a number of different um, clinical conditions that I probably wouldn't have been exposed to otherwise. And not the least of which was, was myofascial pain, chronic myofascial pain. Um, and I quickly developed an interest in this field simply because, again, I, I started observing a number of things that, that really, in my mind, didn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so th that not making sense, and uh, that is certainly a theme uh, that I think a lot of chiropractors who have uh, or who go on to research have that same thing. I know when I was... Uh, going to go back to school, I looked at the literature at the time and there wasn't a whole lot on human performance and uh, athleticism and in the chiropractic literature anyway. So I thought, well, uh, I'd go back and learn how to do that. And it sounds like you had a similar kind of uh, yeah. practice looking at the, uh, the myofascial pain in particular. Now, I know you also do... Yeah, sorry, if I can add to that, um, yeah. essentially, you know, a couple of things really um, that jumped out at me. So in, as I started practicing in 92, I mean, I, would, I, I got into this integrative sort of practice and I uh, started noticing these things and developed a lot of questions, and not the least of which, you know, were these questions in acupuncture. So many chiros now are practicing acupuncture as well. And uh, what I found, I, I found some of the effects to be very profound, but I couldn't explain these using sort of basic, as you just mentioned, basic scientific jargon. And, you know, it became very clear to me that, that we were missing something very profound, some underlying mechanism. Um, and, and this is really what drove me back to school in, in uh, 2003, where I began to pursue my, uh, my graduate work at the University of Guelph. That is, uh, yeah, that's fantastic. I, I love hearing these stories because it just pumps me up and <laughs> makes me want to, I don't know, pursue another degree or something or just keep going on because this is amazing stuff. Now, I'd like to, um, to get into uh, some of your research and really hit some of this stuff, try to get to some of the core mechanisms because I read um, in preparing to uh, talk with you today, I, I read, uh, I think, most of the articles that you published. Um, and uh, so mm -hmm. you've published in, in a lot of different uh, well-respected journals, Gait and Posture, uh, Experimental Brain Research, Motor Control, Journal of the Canadian Chiropractic Association, JMPT, the Journal of Pain, and, and others. And you've invested a lot of uh, time, um, money, education, training, all those things in learning uh, these skills that you've uh, become familiar with, including neurophysiological and biomechanical methods. What, uh, what kind of important questions do you see that, um, that you've learned about through your graduate work that you can be applied to chiropractic? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so these, these questions 
you know, that I, I developed uh, in practice were really what drove me. And, and I, as, as you know, as a researcher, um, all good science begins with observation. So we as clinician scientists, we, we, we have, you know, a full day of observation. And, and from there, the inquisitive mind begins to ask, you know, why? Why is this working? Why doesn't this work? How does this work? So <clears throat> there's a number of questions that arose throughout my practice. And um, really, I think the, 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 the key questions, you know, again, being exposed to myofascial pain and treating myofascial trigger points uh, was really the mechanisms. I would notice, um, uh, you know, again, that when I'm treating myofascial pain, certainly it was a growing problem because of the aging population. But uh, what I noticed was that when I was treating um, uh, uh, trigger points, they did not respond like acute localized areas of injury. So the current school of thought really um, in, in the field of myofascial pain, the integrated hypothesis states that the trigger point essentially begins or is initiated by a local injury in the muscle, which would connotate, um, you know, local inflammation and so on, a local pathology. And what I, what I began to notice as I was treating these patients was that really it wasn't behaving that way. So, you know, most of us who do myofascial trigger point work will notice that when we apply pressure to a trigger point, um, again, if it's an acute, a local acute area, the first response typically would be withdrawal, the local withdrawal reflex. But I was noticing that patients actually wanted more. It was locally tender when I applied the, 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 the pressure, but over time I would notice that patients would actually lean into my finger. They wanted more pressure. It was a good pain, in other words. So I started noticing this and you know, questioning this, this behavior as being an injury. It wasn't behaving like one. So this was the, probably the most important thing that had me questioning you know, what I was doing and, and what I was taught. Uh, and then as I began to notice these things more and more, um, I started noticing that there was definitely a trend um, in the opposite direction, really, that this wasn't local injury, that there must be some other mechanism involved here. And that's really what drove me back to school. And that was the question really was, is the trigger point the site of local primary pathology or is it something else? This is fascinating. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. Uh, I couldn't agree more with you, especially when you mentioned, you know, that people will lean into you and they'll say it's a good pain or a good hurt. I experience that all the time. Um, fascinating that that you took that idea and just wanted to uh, to drill down to the core and find out what the heck is going on with this stuff. I love that. That's great. Um, yeah, and then so and then when you when you dig into the literature, <coughs> um, you'll see, and certainly as a student, as a master student, I you know this was my focus was to learn more about the existing literature and, and to dig deeper into the literature. Um, you start noticing the trigger points essentially have been identified with a number of clinical conditions in the absence of injury. So even in, there's been case studies, uh, even uh, with trigger, and, and now experimental studies with trigger points forming um, post-infection and then being resolved uh, after the infection uh, is treated. So again, um, you know, as you dig into the literature, it becomes quite apparent that there may be other pathways here other than local injury. Yes. So, well, let's uh, 
maybe back up one step and then we'll get into those mechanisms and the studies uh, that you've done using ultrasound and dry needling, chiropractic adjustments, capsaicin. Um, but uh, let's, let's talk about, just for a second, um, if you could define um, what myofascial pain is and how trigger points, uh, are the trigger points the cause of the pain? Uh, so if we mm -hmm. just maybe quickly define what those terms are and then, and then we'll talk about sensory Great. sensitization. Absolutely, yeah. So myofascial pain, as we all know, is a, um, a condition of chronic regional uh, musculoskeletal pain. Um, and, and it is, we call it regional because that's how it begins. And then if it's allowed to remain, it can lead to a generalized pain condition we know as fibromyalgia. But uh, speaking to myofascial pain, uh, the current school of thought is that uh, the myofascial trigger point is the source of pain uh, in the clinical manifestation of myofascial pain. So the trigger point itself is the focal point um, of this condition. And so the myofascial trigger point is a local hyper-irritable palpable nodule, and we've all felt them, uh, that's located along the extrafusal muscle fiber uh, of skeletal muscle. So these, again, are purported to, uh, to be the primary source of pain uh, according to David Simons and the integrated hypothesis, uh, the primary source of pain in myofascial pain. Okay, I lost you there for a second. So if, the, if I can add to that, the, currently the key outstanding... At what point did you lose me? Oh, uh, it just seemed like it cut out just for a second. Uh, I, I heard right... Are you there? To, uh, yes, can you hear me? Dr. Serbo, can you hear me? I can. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. Sorry. I just, yeah, I, uh, I, just I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, I, I can hear you. Uh, okay. So, um, how, so how about uh, so, central sensitization then? So what, if I can add to that. If, <clears throat> yeah, so if I can add to that last point I made is that currently the key outstanding question in the field of myofascial pain is whether the um, myofascial trigger point is the source of primary pathology in myofascial pain or whether it is a secondary manifestation of some other process. So that really was the, the overarching research question um, that, and it still is the research question that I'm pursuing. So how does central sensitization play into this uh, essentially, my hypothesis um, that I'm developing here at the University of Guelph is basically centered around central sensitization and its role in the pathophysiology of myofascial trigger points. So the hypothesis, as it reads, states that uh, the myofascial trigger point is the uh, clinical manifestation of central sensitization and not the result of primary local injury as previously believed. So if I can, if I can um, okay. sort of rephrase that, is the trigger point is essentially a secondary response to central sensitization that has been evoked through a distinct primary pathology within the common neuromeric field. And then I know that's a mouthful. I know we're going to talk about this more. But I thought I'd just uh, introduce that yeah. at this point. So again, it's a secondary response. It's not 
the primary source of pathology. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that is really interesting stuff. So I want to delve into your studies and then maybe we can come back and talk about central sensitization um, after we talk about the studies some more. So um, many of your papers have used, uh, I found, very, uh, a very interesting um, and fresh approach to looking at myofascial pain. Um, you've done uh, papers dealing with uh, ultrasound, dry needling, chiropractic adjustments, and capsaicin, uh, just to name a few, in trying to describe this myofascial pain and central sensitization. Could you, uh, one paper that I have particular interest in and uh, based upon our audience is the chiropractic paper uh, that you did in uh, 2013. And this was dealing with um, uh, spinal manipulation and you looked at uh, the effect of the manipulation on the uh, sensitivity of certain key muscles, uh, for example, the infraspinatus, gluteus medius, um, and you were looking at uh, whether the manipulation in this particular case had a segmental uh, effect, I guess you could say, on the myofascial pain or a non-segmental kind of effect. Can you uh, tell us about that, that study? Certainly, yeah. I mean, I, I can provide you some rationale for this, and this really uh, formed the early work um, during my uh, graduate uh, research <clears throat> and really established the foundation for my hypothesis. And so essentially, um, if, if central, you know, the rationale here is if central sensitization is a primary mechanism in the pathophysiology of myofascial trigger points, then we should necessarily see a regional or segmental effect. So if I evoked central sensitization experimentally, or even if it was evoked naturally through some pathology like a disc herniation or, or a degenerative joint, then the, the, if the neurogenic hypothesis, if, if uh, central sensitization is a mechanism, then you will see trigger points forming in very distinct regional patterns or segmental patterns. And so what I tried to do early on is simply see whether this mechanism is in fact uh, present. So we did a lot of this work on, on young, healthy subjects and, and simply used uh, 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 capsation, topical capsation, to evoke a very mild but persistent sensitization. So this is a, um, a technique used by Dirks, who's, who's sort of pioneered this, uh, in terms of evoking uh, um, a non-invasively invoking central sensitization that is persistent and reversible. So I applied this technique. Uh, to young, healthy subjects, and really I, I just wanted to see whether I could uh, uh, both increase sensitivity within the common myotome, and whether through therapeutic interventions, such as spinal manipulation, uh, ultrasound, dry needling, whether I could reverse this. And so, in fact, in 2008, I looked at the effect of ultrasound, I think this is the study you're referring to, where I applied the ultrasound to a myofascial trigger point in the C5 myotome and I looked at the segmental effect. So I applied it to the supraspinatus trigger point and then I, I looked at the effect on the infraspinatus trigger point pain sensitivity. And what we saw was a very 
very uh, significant decrease in sensitivity within that infraspinatus, suggestive of, uh, of a strong, robust segmental response. So effectively, uh, the therapeutic intervention of ultrasound was having some sort of modulatory effect on the, the uh, pain processing within that segment. Now on the flip side, in 2.10, what I tried to do was show that I could increase the pain sensitivity in the C5 myotome by uh, experimentally evoking sensitization using topical capsation. So I, what I simply did was I, I applied capsation C5 dermatome, sensitized the C5 segment, and then looked at what uh, looked at changes in pain sensitivity within the infraspinatus trigger point. And what we saw was significant increases in sensitivity after the experimental induction of, of central sensitization. So again, the, these were foundational studies that demonstrated a very robust segmental effect and again, supporting this neurogenic paradigm. Amazing. So uh, the manipulation paper then, so you, um, can you tell us uh, where, did, where did you adjust, was, uh, presumably in the neck uh, at the level, was it C4, C5 that you adjusted? In exactly, there? so sorry, I, I didn't address the manipulation. So again, I used the same model. I used uh, the infraspinatus um, trigger point. So I, I assessed pre and post pain sensitivity um, after manipulation. So we adjusted the C5 level and measured the pain sensitivity before and after the adjustment. And we, and we um, used, a, it was a control study, so we used Vernon's sham protocol. In fact, Howie Vernon was uh, a part of our research team, so he, he applied the sham. And we saw significant uh, decreases in pain sensitivity at the uh, C5. And what we did in, these, in all of these studies, we used a segmental control point in the hip. So what we did was we measured the pain sensitivity as well in the hip. So the hip was precluded from any local segmental effects, and what we saw was no changes in the hip. So again, supporting this segmental, this robust segmental response post-manipulation. Interesting. So this has very important implications to chiropractic in the sense that one of this, the mechanisms here is um, of, of manipulation may be modulation of central sensitization. And if that's the case, then then um, we have a strong rationale uh, as primary gatekeepers of, of, of a number of conditions that are tied to central sensitization, such as chronic myofascial pain, such as osteoarthritis, and, and even non-musculoskeletal conditions like um, functional gastrointestinal disorders, irritable bowel syndromes, and so on. So we're opening the door now to a lot of, um, uh, a lot of possibilities here. Yes, I mean this. The your your mechanism of explaining it uh, sounds much like um, you know the the chiropractic uh, philosophy, chiropractic science courses we all took long ago. Uh, with the you know the nervous system is uh, is the key, and uh, so wow, this is yeah, this is really fascinating. So. The, this neurogenic hypothesis of trigger point formation. Now, what, what if, I'm just going to give a hypothetical, what, what if you apply multiple of these mm -hmm. treatments, for example, uh, adjusting acupuncture, ultrasound, all the things that you found to have that segmental effect, do you think you would notice 
uh, an even better effect with the if you couple these things together. And that's a great question, Dean. Um, that that's in fact what we are looking at right now. So, so the studies I just cited, uh, these are studies that I did again in my um, in my graduate work, and uh, and again laying the foundation for this paradigm. So now, you know what you're effectively talking about is a dose response effect. Now I'm we're, we're in fact looking at that. So we've we've initiated studies. In fact, we've got a few studies. In, in review, in submission right now, that have looked at uh, just that, multiple manipulation. We've looked at different, now we're looking at different waveforms of ultrasound to optimize. Uh, we're looking at multiple trigger point stimulation along the same, within the same myotome. So we're, we're, we're trying to see whether there's a summative effect, spatial summation and temporal summation. So um, these are all questions that... Uh, that uh, need to be addressed. But again, the first studies needed to establish whether these mechanisms were in fact there, and they are. So hopefully we can have another conversation yeah, well, in, had... in a few years and I can answer some, some of these dose response questions uh, with, with some data. Well, I would, uh, I would absolutely love that. Um, now, there, there has been, um, some recent controversy uh, that suggests the theory behind myofascial pain caused by trigger points should be discarded. And I'm thinking of uh, one paper co-authored by Dr. Uh, uh, Beauvais, who's a, a chiropractor as well. Um, did, have you had a chance to read that? Or uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the controversy. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Indeed. Indeed, yeah. And I know, I know Dr. Beauvais quite well. Um, and we've we've chatted about this, uh, and I and I don't I, I don't think it should be discarded. I mean, I think he may have mentioned something to that effect, but I I don't think he's necessarily saying to discard it. But you know, their point is, um, I mean, their the point is aligned um, quite closely to to what I'm saying as well. Is that there is a strong neurogenic component to the formation of the trigger point. And, and what they're essentially saying is that the, the idea that the trigger point is the primary pathology is not adequately supported with the evidence at the moment. You know, that, that could very well be the case down the road, but at the moment, that, there just isn't enough evidence to, to, to say that, that it's the primary pathology. But they don't deny the existence of a trigger point, um, but uh, they, they do uh, indicate that there there may be other hypotheses or multiple pathways to the formation of a trigger point. And one of them they suggested, I believe, was the focal nerve inflammation, uh, for which they, they, I don't think they offered an explanation, uh, and also referred pain. So, th so these two alternate hypotheses that they suggest are really aligned with this concept of central sensitization that I'm developing. So... So the article was, was I think, very well written, and I think it opened up um, uh, points of discussion, I think, that needed to be addressed in, and that still need to be addressed in the field of myofascial pain. So, so I think as this neurogenic paradigm evolves, I think you're going to see more, um, more practitioners kind of, uh, um, kind of veering towards this idea, because this is effectively what, what is most aligned with what we see in practice this neurogenic well, yeah, phenomenon. Yeah, not only that, I mean, 
anatomically, neurologically, it makes sense <laughs> as well. I mean, there's a, as you say, it there's does. a mechanism there that explains, helps to explain the phenomenon, whereas before it seemed like there, there wasn't, uh, at least that I had seen, there, there wasn't really anything that helped to explain it. Um, yeah, and one of the one of the issues. Yeah, one of the <clears throat> one of the key issues as a practitioner as well is is you and I and, and I think all of the participants and guests here will will attest to is that when you treat just the trigger point, um, <clears throat> the symptoms tend to reappear. It's a recurrent thing. So so you, you don't get long term resolution of the problem. And I think this is what I started noticing early on in my practice as well. So <clears throat> treating the trigger point alone, if it was the site of local pathology, then treating the trigger point alone would resolve the issue of myofascial pain. But in fact, it doesn't. Right. But in, the, in that case, so uh, going back to your theory, the neurogenic hypothesis, so the idea may be that that trigger point, for example, the, uh, the issue brought up before was uh, the possibility of, let's say, a disc herniation at a particular segmental mm -hmm. level that may uh, cause a neurogenic response, let's say, in the periphery at that same neurologic level and cause, let's say, a trigger point in the infraspinatus. So you could treat the, tr exactly. uh, the trigger point at the infraspinatus, but unless, unless you get to that neurologic level, uh, and so I'm assuming you know, one way to maybe get to that uh, is, is an adjustment. Um, and exactly. And try to... Uh, to, uh, to get to the core, or the root of it, so to speak. <laughs> well, I think, I think one of the conditions we as chiropractors see very often are disc, obviously disc degeneration, degenerative disc disease, degenerative joint disease. And, and one, of the, um, <clears throat> one of the things that uh, central sensitization requires is a persistent nociceptive input. So these chronic joint conditions, these chronic disc conditions are ideal for, for establishing an environment of sensitization because they're persistent and, 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 and they, they evoke persistent inflammation. <clears throat> so, so I think this is the important thing is as, as clinicians, what we need to do is, is you can treat the trigger point and, and what, what effect you'll achieve is essentially desensitizing temporarily that segment, but you need to get to the primary pathology, which is the disc. So that may involve traction, it may involve manipulation of that disc, it may involve rest, uh, ice, uh, nutritional, uh, you know, sort of a, a general wellness approach, um, a biomechanical approach as well. So once you've resolved the disc, then the trigger points tend to resolve on their own. And I think this is the important thing. So if, if we as clinicians see a recurrent trigger point, that is telling you that there is a persistent nociceptive input being driven into that segment from some tissue, be it somatic and or visceral. And that's an important clinical pearl, I think, that we can take home from this talk today. Yes, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Now, you've, you've done many other studies uh, and on different uh, topics. One, one of the um, ones that you've done recently was a two-part publication about knowledge transfer within the Canadian chiropractic community. Could you tell us just a little bit about that project? And, and uh, so I, I, I have had a chance to read those, but for the mm -hmm. people that are listening today, what, what are the kinds of ways that we can 
take the research, the evidence that, uh, that we generate as scientists and get it out to chiropractors who need this information? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so that's a great question, and, and, and I really got involved with this because, you know, um, just to give you a little background in Canada, we, we've had this initiative from the Canadian Chiropractic Research Foundation where uh, they were supporting positions such as mine at the University of Guelph, um, uh, research chair positions, chiropractic research chair positions, and we have, I think at this point, 12 across Canada. So the, the uh, chiropractic research uh, footprint is growing and, and we're developing a lot of good data and the next step really is to translate that into into best practice uh, policy as well and so this is why I got involved with this knowledge transfer group here in Canada um, and the, the, the papers were essentially the initial foray into this so the, there was a two-part collaboration with a number of chiropractors all of them being uh, chiropractic research chairs funded through the CCRF here in Canada. And our aim was really to just provide a basic understanding of knowledge transfer, how knowledge transfer is currently integrated in chiropractic uh, community in the greater chiropractic profession, and perhaps provide some suggestions on how to improve knowledge transfer in chiropractic. Because as we all know, uh, certainly here in Canada, with our uh, healthcare system, um, the government is looking more and more towards evidence and evidence uh, an evidence-based system so any healthcare profession is, is going to have to justify what they do on, on a fundamental scientific level and I think this is a critical sort of uh, goal and aim of the profession at the moment is to in increase the supporting evidence for chiropractic practice and so it's, it's worked very well but it's 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 not um, valuable if it's not translated to the clinician. So again, this was our goal through this two-part publication. And, uh, and essentially, the first part was really an overview of KT uh, with a specific discussion of the barriers um, in chiropractic. And some of the barriers um, are really, I think, simple ones. Lack of time. Clinicians just aren't, I mean, they're busy. They're busy treating patients. They don't have time to uh, per peruse the literature and the lack of skills, really, to appraise the literature uh, reliably. Um, the second part, really, was a discussion of, of the KT strategies. So there's a number of them, and probably too many to discuss here, um, but there are things like passive strategies, publications, clinical practice guidelines, developing uh, guidelines based on the evidence, the current evidence, and I'm involved in a, uh, in a um, initiative here in Canada with regards to that as well. There are active strategies where we can have personal interactions with uh, the end users through conferences, perhaps workshops, um, <clears throat> podcasts like this, etc., etc. Um, we can target end users through mass media, education outreach, and so on. So there's a number of ways, and, and really I think it just depends on ultimately the goal of the uh, of the association and the nature of the, of the uh, of the research as well, and who the end user is. So. Um, our, our goal really was just to sort of open the door and, and bring this information to the fore. Very good. So the, the next thing I want to ask you about, and uh, I've been asking the last couple of uh, researchers I've had on the podcast, uh, including Dr. Bernadette Murphy, um, mm -hmm. who I think you've actually done oh, I know work very with, well. right? 
Yes, I know her very well, actually. Yeah. We're in so, collaboration. Yeah, great. So she, I interviewed her uh, last time, and, and one of the questions that I had for her was, um, how, would you, how would you describe how an adjustment works uh, to, a, to, let's say, a scientist or, or to, a, to a patient? Or both. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, so her and I would probably answer this question similarly. <laughs> um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so how, is, how would adjustment uh, work? And, and so essentially the, the, the hypothesis really, um, from my aspect, is that it's a neurophysiologic response. And really the uh, spinal manipulation, in my opinion, its primary mechanism of action is really through modulating or, or desensitizing these segments. And so, um, you know, central sensitization has a number of effects, not the least of which is local muscle spasm, evoking pain and so on. And so by manipulating a segment, what you'll see is an immediate response, certainly in joint range of motion, and that's testament to the release of, of, of the hypertonicity surrounding the joint and decreased pain because essentially we, we've, We've modulated central sensitization, which, which is the, the amplification of pain. So, so that's how I would explain it to another scientist. To a patient, essentially, I, I would tell them that the, the adjustment, essentially, going back to you know, our forefathers, the, the adjustment normalizes the nervous system or it, uh, or it resets the nervous system, if you will. It's as simple as that. Yes. I, I couldn't agree more. I think the normalization is a great way to explain it. I think there's a, a sufficient research uh, for sure uh, to justify that at this point. And your work now again to add to that. Yeah. So to add to that, again, it, it does normalize central sensitization. But as astute clinicians, we know that if we're adjusting the person and they're coming back with the same complaint then we need to be, after you know, two or three visits, then we need to be looking elsewhere <coughs> within, that, within that segment. So it could be a disc, it could be a joint, it could be some other tissue that's causing <clears throat> or, or perpetuating the sensitization. And I think this is an important clinical uh, consideration that we as chiropractors need to, uh, to uh, realize. Yes, indeed. Well, we're getting uh, close to the end here, but I'd like to ask just some wrap-up questions so, Dr. Serbo, what, what do you see as some of the pressing uh, issues within the profession at the moment? And you can you could answer it with uh, research questions or research issues or just in general. What, what do you think, where do you think we need to go uh, in chiropractic at this point? Yeah, I, 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 I think it's basically evidence, evidence, evidence. I mean, we all know chiropractic works. Um, we just need to be able to explain it in, in, you know, basically in using, you know, Western sort of biomedical and neurophysiologic jargon. We need to be able to make the, the basic scientist understand what we do. I think that's really the first step. And, and, and you know, when we do that, not if, when, I think we're getting very close here um, in, in some of the work I'm doing and Bernadette and some of the other researchers out there. We're getting very close to the mechanisms. Um, and, and so once that happens, I think our credibility will, will increase significantly, certainly amongst the uh, orthodox medical community, the scientific community, and certainly government and other stakeholders. But until then, 
you know, and it's just one of these things until someone understands what you do until we, in other words, we speak the same language, they're, they're really not going to take you seriously or, or there's always that element of doubt. And so I think the key thing right now, the most pressing issue is research and we need to invest heavily in research, continue to invest heavily in research uh, and accumulate important evidence that's going to uh, support what we do on a basic scientific level. Fantastic. Well, one of the goals of this podcast series is to motivate and assist practitioners and students to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. Can you offer any advice to these aspiring chiropractors or students uh, that you've gleaned over the years? Most certainly. Um, research is a wonderfully fulfilling profession, um, but, it, but it is a long, very arduous road. And uh, I think, you know, there's really no end point to research. It can be very frustrating because every, every answer you discover, you raise another three questions. So it's, it can be frustrating in that way. But it is a very, very fulfilling, as you know, a very fulfilling path. Um, and, and you need to really enjoy the process and not really look towards an end point because really I don't think there is an end point. Um, I think... The, the balance between clinical exposure and, and science is a good one. I, I've seen many people sort of go full-time into research or, or, or even just a full-time basic researcher with no clinical experience. I think you're very limited, certainly even as a researcher, um, but you're limited in the type of questions that you can ask because you don't have that body of observation. So I would say maintain your clinical exposure as well as a chiropractor. Uh, this allows you to ask relevant questions and, and keep yourself uh, at the forefront of uh, clinical observation. And finally, just really pick your, pick your supervisor and your institution. If you do f decide to go that route, pick them more carefully than you've picked your parents because <laughs> that really determines how good a scientist you will become is your supervisor. Excellent advice. Excellent advice. I, I love that. One of the things, uh, again, uh, just to mention Dr. Murphy, in our discussion, uh, we were kind of joking around a after the, the podcast that, uh, you know, some of these techniques that, that we all learn, like for her, it was the transcranial magnetic stim, and she had practiced this for, <laughs> you know, five, mm -hmm. six months to get good recordings and, and things like that. And so, yeah, it, you have to be persistent. And it is, I couldn't agree more, it is about the process. And so if you like the process um, and, you, and you love what you do as a practitioner and you're interested in research, uh, then, you know, maybe this is the right thing uh, for you. Cause but you also, I think you also really need to invest, you need to be invested in important or questions that are important to you. So, you know, if I can reflect back on my past, you know, this, this idea of the myofascial trigger point, myofascial pain was very, very intriguing simply because it was a very challenging uh, condition to treat. It kept coming back. So it was very clear to me that I was missing something. And so I became very invested in this process. I think that's what drove me through the whole PhD thing and, and now beyond. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the it being personal, yeah, so for me it's performance, and uh, so everybody's got their own thing, but that's the beauty of it, is that we need, you know, 
you know, what you observe clinically in your own practice, um, and and uh, everybody's observing all this stuff who's in practice. You can you can take it on further and, and really get to uh, to explode it when when you get to doing research. So, thank you very much, and and thank you, Dr. Sherwell, for taking the time out and spending your valuable time here with us today. Uh, it was just phenomenal. I really appreciate it. Um, do you have any concluding uh, remarks? Well, thank you. Well, I, I just want to thank you for inviting me. I mean, this was uh, indeed a pleasure. Um, and if there's any follow-up, uh, I would certainly be happy to uh, address any follow-up from any of the participants or yourself or, or, or answer any questions anyone might have. So, so by all means, feel free to touch base with me uh, at any time. Okay. Well, that's great, and uh, I certainly look forward to having another uh, interview with you, and I'm just uh, fascinated by the uh, study that you're talking about combining the different types of uh, treatments to see what kind of effect you get. Um, I have a similar thing going on in my line of work where we're coupling exercise and adjustments together to see what kind of uh, motor, motor effect we get Very interesting. Um, on reactions. And, and movement times and things, uh, and uh, I think part part of uh, part of this whole thing, at least what I'm coming to the realization is that yeah, chiropractic works. I mean, we've known that clinically, and and it's uh, it, it, it's almost like what, what do we what how do we optimize the adjustment? Uh, you know, do we? And maybe Indeed. that's getting back to your line of line of thing is is. Uh, Maybe we optimize it by being better diagnosticians, or we, you know, we get to the core. And for maybe, maybe for everybody, it's different. Uh, but maybe there are some common things that we still need to uh, to, to learn about. I'm, I'm not sure, but uh, it's interesting, and it will uh, provoke both of us to continue on. I'm sure <laughs> into this. In, indeed, and I think one of the one of the uh, offshoots of, of my work is really. I think it's laying a cornerstone to further research uh, in non-musculoskeletal effects of, of spinal manipulation. So I'm involved in a task force right now that's looking at that uh, very thing. So I think uh, we're, we're sort of quickly going down that path. So uh, we'll certainly keep in touch on this, uh, on this topic in the future. Absolutely. Well, thanks again. We'll talk soon then. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too.